Men without cocks. You wouldn't find me fighting in an army if I had no cock. What's left to fight for? Gold? I spend my life around soldiers. What do you think they spend that gold on? Family. Not without a cock, you don't. Maybe it really is all cocks in the end. And yet your brother has chosen to side with the cockless. Yes. He's always been a champion of the downtrodden. Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene. Winter's coming. 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 I cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our king. Dracaris. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And today we are reviewing episode 7, The Dragon and the Wolf. Season seven finale. And I spelled it finally. Yes. On Twitter. Did. <laughs> Let's be fair, it was like two in the morning. So I was a little tired. That's true. We said last time this was directed by Jeremy Padeswa. In the past, he's done Kill the Boy, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken, The Red Woman, Home, and Dragonstone in this season. With a runtime of eighty minutes, this episode is the longest one of the series so far. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a ninety-two percent and IMDb gave it a 9.7. They said, while last week's episode seemed to rush through big moments, the dragon and the wolf slowed things down considerably, delivering lengthy, meaningful scenes filled with dialogue, deception, revelations, twists, and the most major characters ever assembled into one spot on the series. To cap it all off, we got a big action sequence that drastically changed the game board going into the final season. I think that sums it up perfectly. I couldn't have said it better myself, and that's why I didn't. We have a correction to make to our instant cast. Thank you to Playball99 for writing in with the information. It turns out this was not the same actor that played Viserys. It was an English actor who played Viserys, Harry Lloyd, and a Welsh actor who played Rhaegar this episode, Wilf Scolding. Why did they make them look so similar? Well, I did a little research on this. They said it was intentional. They actually chose an actor who somewhat resembled Viserys so that you would make that familial connection on site. Oh, that they're brothers. Yes. And then they put him in, I believe, the same wig that Viserys wore. I understand that, actually, the way they were thinking. But the way I was thinking was when you see the actor and you think of Viserys, that gives you a bad feeling. And they don't want us to have a bad feeling with this guy. Yeah, there's so many negative connotations that come along with that. And as TV watchers, you don't know that much about Rhaegar, the type of person he was. But that's definitely not what they want you to think about with him. Barristan Selmy told us once he was a peaceful man who preferred singing to killing. He was skilled in combat, but compassionate, loved to read, and was loyal to a fault. He was described as having silver golden hair and dark lilac eyes. He was tall and handsome. But a very different personality, and I think that's important, especially now as we learn about John's parentage and maybe some of the characteristics that he has inherited from that side of his background. We also should talk about our title meaning for a second. This is obviously a reference to the sigils of House Targaryen and House Stark. 
but also previous episodes have followed a similar theme in nomenclature. We had The Wolf and the Lion in Season 1, The Lion and the Rose in Season 4, and The Mountain and the Viper in Season 4. So typically, these were all important houses who had characters being pitted against each other. In Season 1, you had The Wolf and the Lion, which was the Starks and the Lannisters going at it, The Lion and the Rose, the Lannisters and the Tyrells, and of course, the showdown between The Mountain and the Red Viper. This one, however, seems to point to the uniting of the two houses between John and Danny. Also, we mentioned our deaths for the episode last time. Definitively, Littlefinger, with a question mark on Tormund and Beric. Jeff wrote in to say, it may be wishful thinking, but I think Beric and Tormund ran off the top of the wall westward. I'm hoping they got past the part of the wall that collapsed. I think Tormund is too big of a character to have him died without a final scene. Yeah, and we got a couple tweets about that as well. When I watched it again, Tormund is looking left as the wall is falling. So in my head, he's to the right of the falling wall, so west of it. So I'm hoping that, yes, he was safe, and hopefully he has a way to get down. I couldn't remember if he was running down into the castle, which I think would have been bad news, or over towards the side of the wall. I think it was a little of both. Okay. Just a few quick notes before we get further into this episode. We've gotten so many emails. We love you guys. Thank you so much for following us. And we got some emails saying that they really enjoyed us and they were going to go back after this season and listen to our other podcasts about Game of Thrones. Oh dear, how far are they going back? So here's the deal. And I think we started this season off saying this. When we started this, it was three years ago and we were just getting started in podcasts. So we weren't that good. When I spoke, I definitely see now listening back to it, I didn't have confidence yet and we just didn't have timing down. We weren't doing as heavy of editing. There were also some in our season four reviews where we had background music playing the entire time, and I know we've gotten complaints about that. We started off with the season three recap going into season four. So the first full season we reviewed was four. I think maybe towards the end of that one and into five is when we started to clean things up a bit. Yeah, but the information was good. It's just we didn't have the chops. Absolutely, especially in our bonus episodes, we went deeper into book knowledge and background, and we had a lot of fun talking about theories and predictions. So go ahead, check those out. Just know that they're not going to be as clean as these. But also check out our Westworld, Mr. Robot, Sherlock, and the Magicians podcast. You'll love those. We also got so much feedback for this episode. It was really exciting to read all of your emails. I'm sorry if I hadn't gotten a chance to get back to you yet, I will respond within this week. But we have read them all, really great feedback and information. We will get to some of the ones we can in Clatcher's comments at the end of this episode and cover the rest in our bonus podcast. Now, if you sent an email and you don't see it, check your spam because that's been known to happen. Okay, so let's dive into Crow's Eye View, starting at King's Landing. From the battlements, Jamie and Bronn survey the Unsullied and Dothraki army outside the gates. Braun orders 500 more barrels. Now, I was wondering if this was going to be a setup for later, and it would turn out Cersei was trapping them again if this was wildfire. I know that seemed way too obvious to have two season finales back-to-back end that way, but tell me, once we had our whole group gathered there and Cersei and crew had left, you weren't starting to get a little bit nervous for our major players. Well, they were there for a while. Tyrion goes to speak to his sister, and they're hanging out in the middle there. And they were sitting ducks, and I was worried. I think that was a purposeful callback to last season finale, just to keep us on the edge of our (laughs) seats. This was more likely barrels of pitch, 
which is basically oil that they would use to light flaming arrows. And I'm sure Bronn was setting it up just in case the worst happened. So we had what seemed like a fun dialogue between Bronn and Jamie, and Bronn's wondering about the eunuch army, what's left to fight for when you're men without cocks. He talks about Tyrion joining their side, and Jamie says, yes, he's always been a champion of the downtrodden. I think that was easily missed, but we're starting to really see Tyrion's character be fleshed out more, and perhaps his downfalls, some of what seemed to be his greatest strengths when we first started out, like, yes, he wanted to fight for the underdog, or he was always the one that was more clever than anyone else. He was dedicated to his family, despite the way they treated him. This is all kind of coming back around to kick him in the ass a little bit in season seven. Well, meanwhile, out in the bay, the Kraken Armada waits. As Danny's ship arrives, Tyrion tells Jon there are about a million people in King's Landing. I love that we're getting a lot of numbers in this episode. Uh, sometimes they don't always match up, I think, to the numbers we have gotten previously or those in the books. But at least we're able to wrap our heads around what the figures are. This is like them sailing up to New York City and someone from way up north who has acres and acres of land saying, how does anyone live like this? Yeah. <laughs> they can't even breathe. Well, it's starting to give us an idea, right, of how many people will be on each side once these battles begin. So not that all the common folk in King's Landing are going to be fighting for Cersei, but we know how many people she has on her side. We know she's planning on getting 20,000 men from the Golden Company, in addition to war elephants. 20,000? I thought it was 10. Yeah, it was 10 in the books, and we were surmising 10 here, but she said 20 this episode. I believe they've estimated the northern forces to be around 10,000, and that's not counting Danny and her men. And of course, we don't really have a number on that after the battles, how many Unsullied, how many Dothraki. It still looks like a decent force from what we see outside those gates. Right now, I think she could take Cersei even if the Golden Company were to come, especially with her dragons. For sure. But once we go to fight in the north, and that army is inevitably going to be decimated, because we find out the Night's King has 100,000 at least in his army of the dead. Including a dragon and a lot of giants. Yes. So once that all happens, we're not going to stand as good of a chance if we have to fight against Cersei. So Cersei waits for everyone to arrive, and she gives orders to the mountain if anything goes wrong. Chris wrote in with this quote that she says, Kill the silver-haired bitch first, then our brother, then the bastard who calls himself king. And so is this the order of importance as she sees it, the threats to her? Maybe threats, but maybe the amount of hate she has in her heart. Of course, Danny she hates the most, then her brother, and then John. I mean, John and her never crossed paths till now, right? Not really. I think she's viewing him very similarly as she would Ned Stark. She's counting on him having a bit of honor and loyalty that will keep him from doing anything crazy. And also, she's maybe hoping it'll trip him up the way that it did for Ned. Honestly, even the handful of Dothraki that she had with her there, they would have messed the mountain up. Yeah, and you know, I said it last episode, I really think they should have attacked here. A targeted taking out of Cersei and her lead men, spare any other deaths, then you don't have to worry about the crown anymore and you can move on to the main war. Yeah, there's no honor in that. And I think John would uh, fall out of love for her. What, for torching Cersei and her people? I doubt it. Tyrion would leave her because they came in the terms of peace to speak. 
you think they really care about Cersei's life? I think what they were worried about honor-wise was not taking out cities and innocent civilians. As we said at the beginning, when it comes to her, this is war. But like you said, that wouldn't have been good TV. And Cersei is coming into the height of her mad queendom. So yes, that's going to continue on. Why were they all wearing black? We noticed this change coming into this season that more and more characters started wearing the higher cut black outfits. And we thought it was a symbol of the major powers. At first, you only saw it with your leaders, John, Danny, Cersei, and now everybody that's with them has slowly kind of conformed to that. So in the instant, we spoke about how that makes Jamie really stand out because coming into this meeting, I think he's the only one still wearing Lannister colors. But it was pointed out to me that when he rides away from King's Landing later on, he's no longer in that armor. Ooh. Yeah, I missed that one. I loved what you were saying about the high neck, high collared shirts and the meaning behind that. But maybe it's just because it's getting colder everywhere. I think the larger transformation you're seeing now is definitely due to that. We see everybody dressed a little bit warmer. And that makes sense given the fact that we see it snowing even in King's Landing by the end of this episode. Well, then Braun arrives to escort the group to the dragon pit, bringing Brienne and Pod. We went over our walk and talk amongst the characters in our instant cast, but particularly where Jorah explains to Missandei that dragons don't understand what not to kill, and they discuss how this area was built to keep them contained, the arena we call the dragon pit. It was the former stables of the Targaryen dragons, which had been in ruins for over a century. In the books, it was considered one of the three great architectural feats in King's Landing, along with the Red Keep and the Great Sept of Baelor that Cersei blew up last season. In the books, it was much larger, large enough to have held 40 dragons. They had built under vaults carved into the side of the hill for the dragons to nest in, although there were never more than 20 that were alive during the reign of the Targaryens. And the entrance was wide enough for 30 knights to ride side by side. The dome you see them talking in could seat 80,000 people for public spectacles. Now on TV, they had to scale this down because they had the opportunity to film in an actual Roman Colosseum. And I guess they valued the reality more of it, being able to see those walls sort of crumbling down. Before we get to the dragon pit, I love the conversation that Tyrion has with Bronn. It was great because they respect each other. They like each other. Of course, they're picking on each other. <laughs> Tyrion saying, you know, it's not too late to come on our side. Remember, we'll always pay double. And then Varys has his one line in the whole episode there. What's double of zero or something like that? <laughs> Helping me to arrange this meeting wasn't exactly looking after yourself, was it? You put yourself at risk. I put yourself at risk. Important difference. It's your head Queen Cersei's offered a bag of gold for us, not mine. Now, thanks to me... She's got two traitors' heads coming right through her door. She can lop them both off as soon as she gets tired of the clever words that pour out their piles. All thanks to Sabrona the fucking Blackwater. If that's not looking after myself, I don't know what is. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. By the way, not to jump ahead, but did you notice as soon as they get into the dragon pit, Bronn takes Pot aside and says, uh, let's have a drink and let the fancy folks talk? or something along those lines, and they exited before the rest of the group came in. I never knew this, but I read that in real life, Jerome Flynn and Lena Headey have had an estranged relationship for a long time, and they have insisted that they never be on set together. That's pretty crazy to bring it into the workplace, especially for HBO. Well, and now thinking back, I guess we never have seen a scene where they were together. Yeah, you're right. 
She's always talking about Bron to Jamie. Yeah, exactly. And complaining about him. Remember last episode where she said, did you punish him? Yeah. Takes on a whole new meaning now that I know this. But yeah, we talked about the conversation between the Hound and Brienne discussing Arya like proud parents. A lot of reunions, the most amount of main characters that we've seen filmed in one sequence. Yeah, looking at the behind the scenes, they really enjoyed that. They even said they had a little too much fun after filming. It must have been great. You know, a lot of people like John was mainly by himself or with a few characters. I'm speaking of the main characters. Now they can all hang out finally. Yeah, when they were filming for a long time, those northern scenes, there were 17 named recurring characters in the sequence. And they said it took 10 full days to film it because they had to plan out the character reaction so well. That's what it was about. You know, the hound looking at the mountain, Cersei looking at Jamie, how each one would react in the nonverbal cues that were just flying back and forth on screen. It was brilliant. Yeah, and the feeling that they gave you was this tense, anything can happen, it can fall apart any second. And that started as soon as they started walking towards the dragon pit. And it didn't relinquish until you see the scene with Danny back at Dragonstone. Yeah, there was a lot of heavy silences to build the tension. Yeah, and the look on everyone's face. And I was like, this is so bad. Something bad can happen any second. Cersei can sneeze and the dragon just goes, (laughs) I wish that would have happened. Or the chain breaks that's holding the white bag. Oh my goodness, yeah. There you go. That was the easy solution if the hound would have just faked some faulty chains going on there. (laughs) And then it goes to Tyrion and just goes, oops. (laughs) We did not mean that. I'm so sorry. So yeah, Cersei enters with the entourage. They begin the proceedings. Before that, the Hound goes and has his moment with the mountain, which we did talk about last time. But Chris wrote in to say, I think Jason is half right about this reunion. I believe the Hound is telling Gregor, the moment you put my face in the fire, you knew I was going to kill you. I've always felt the Hound would be connected to R'hllor also, having been burnt so young. The fire god probably loves his burnt folk. Sandor has just been too scared of the fire his whole life to ever look in and see its messages. Now he can. Clegane Bowl definitely happening next season. He's saying a bit of both of what you and I predicted would be true. The Hound has been chosen as one of R'hllor's people, and so he will be the one to fight for the mountain, but on the side of the Lord of Light. I really wonder how that'll come about, because we know that Cersei's not going to bring her troops there unless something happens. I don't foresee them... Wiping out the walkers. How many episodes do we have next season? Six. Okay, so like the first three episodes, they wipe out the White Walkers. And then the next three is King's Landing taking that over. I don't see that happening. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, we're going to save this for bonus territory, how we think they might lay it out, what's going to take most importance and when. We'll also talk a little more about the mountain later on in the episode. So we have our teams divided on one side, Danny, Tyrion, Varys, Masande. Then sort of in another section, even though you know they're together, we have Jon, Jorah, Davos, and Theon, the northern contingent. And in the front, you have Cersei, Jaime, Kyburn, Euron, and the Mountain. And we mentioned Varys is conspicuously silent this entire time. He's not saying anything, and there's no reaction from Cersei to him being there even though surely this is the first time she's seeing him sit on the opposite side of the fence. Do you think this lends any credence to what people were saying that Varys could be a spy inside of Danny's army and working for Cersei still? 
To be honest with you, and this is probably not good, I haven't been really thinking about him because he's been nothing that this season. That says something in it's and probably, of itself. Yeah. He is not up to nothing. So if he's not doing something outwardly, I think that makes it most likely he's sneaking around behind the scenes. Maybe, <clears throat> but what about this? The game has changed, right? So our two best chess players, Varys and Littlefinger, really don't do well this season. And it might just be because the game has changed. The chessboard has changed. So maybe that's it. But they've always been able to adapt to that before. And I think you're right that Varys is the better player. So maybe he's figuring out how to change with the times. But again, I think if that was positive or proactive, you might see more of him the way we did early on and him approaching Danny to tell her about why he's fighting on her side. And it also did bring up some questions for me about Littlefinger, which we'll get to later. Did he give up on the bigger schemes for the Iron Throne at some point this season? Is that what we're left to believe, that his main goal was to get together with Sansa and rule the North beside her? And so he was so caught up in that that he just pushed the rest of the bigger game to the side? It's still got me kind of questioning that a little. I don't know if it wraps neatly up in the north or maybe I'm just missing things. But back to King's Landing. Danny arrives in epic fashion on Drogon. I love how in the behind the scenes, Amelia Clark said she was bringing new meaning to the term fashionably late. <laughs> yeah. And before Tyrion can begin speaking, you have Euron start to taunt Theon and Tyrion, Cersei shutting him down. And then John explaining they must unite against their common enemy. It's not about living in harmony. It's just about living. When Cersei starts to argue against a truce, Tyrion says, there's no conversation that will erase the last 50 years. And I thought that wrapped up so much history nicely into one sentence. So they show her. They put on the white demonstration, showing how only fire and dragonglass can stop them. I got confused earlier this season about what kills what because we were doing book lore and it was different from TV lore. Is it different again? Well, we all got confused because Dragon Glass did not work against the Whites in the books, nor did Valyrian Steel. They were both only effective against the others. That's White Walkers on TV. We knew in the TV show that Valyrian Steel was not effective against them. It was just like a really sharp blade, but because they can keep moving when they're oh, I see. torn in half, it doesn't matter. However, it seems to have been definitively proved to us that Dragonglass can take out the Whites in addition to the White Walkers. And I think it was Brian Cogman who told us a couple episodes ago they would be straying from the book in that regard. And then we saw in the Beyond the Wall episode our team using dragonglass weapons to effectively take them out. So yes, that will do it against this army. That's why they needed so much of it from Dragonstone. And I think this line from John here is exactly for that purpose. It's the writers putting it in to explain to us, if you've been confused about it, these are the two things that will do it against whites, fire and dragonglass. Okay, so to stop the dragon, they can't melt down a Valerian steel and make it one of those huge arrows for the scorpion. Well, this is a really interesting question because the listeners have all been asking, is the dragon a white, a risen dead, or is he a white walker? Right, and we did, we did discuss that, and he's a white. He's not a white walker. We thought that, given the way that he had to die first, and then the Night King bring him back, 
any white walkers that we've seen, it appears that they have to be transformed while living. And so if that's the case, it would be only dragon glass or fire. And I think that's fitting because I think if anything takes him down, it will be another dragon with dragon fire. So Euron also points out another interesting thing to us about the whites. We find out definitively they cannot swim. Which we all assumed. We did, but now we know for sure which changes the game of will some people just decide to bail and go over to Essos or over to an island where they can't get to him. I mean, that's not going to stop the Night King from flying in on his dragon, but his focus is here right now, and he is not really probably going to go anywhere without his army of the dead. Well, they're smart. Once they take over Westeros, they have all those ships, so they can just take ships. They could probably figure out a way. Yeah, you wouldn't be safe forever, but you could theoretically peace like Euron's pretending he's going to do and let these people fight the battle while you go stay safe over there for a while. You know, while we're talking about the White Walkers, because I don't want to forget this, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it and looking at the dragon. Did you notice that Viserion already kind of looks like a white? He's got like holes in his wings. He's looking deteriorated because they're dead. They're just re-risen dead. So they do slowly deteriorate and die. Yeah, I know people were complaining about that happening so quickly, but I think we needed the visual cue yeah. to show us that maybe that's the case. You know, he's a white. So the reason why the White Walkers, the Night King, brings winter with him is because it's like putting meat in the freezer. It helps them stay alive longer, much longer. So wherever they're going, they bring winter with them. It's like being in a freezer and his army stays alive longer. Ah, so old school zombie rules. We stop the deterioration. That's what I think. That makes sense. I like that. In that case, does his level of decay tell us something about a dragon? Do they deteriorate more quickly, perhaps, than other creatures? Well, we saw the bear, right? And he was all messed up. Yeah, but we don't know how long he was dead. So listeners are saying, presumably, Viserion hasn't been dead that long. And yet, he's not looking very good already. Yeah, he'll be long He'll be around long enough to... uh, Oh, you don't like my theory that he could start sputtering out quicker? (laughs) No, I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. Come on, I'm looking for loopholes here. Like his Duracell battery runs out right before they fight? Yeah. (laughs) And then the little pink bunny goes... (laughs) So Euron says he's leaving. We all know this isn't true. I I just have to say for a second, has there been a point to Euron this season? Yeah. Other than to serve as a plot device to move our narrative forward? I haven't been entirely in on his character from the time he first showed up on scene and his look wasn't what I pictured. His character is a little bit, uh, at times, maybe goofy. The way he's reacting in this meeting where you just want to smack him and tell him to shut up. He's supposed to be intimidating and yet I can't always take him seriously. Seems like he's always just there at the right time to give Cersei whatever she needs to keep her fight going. We've talked about it before. There's a lot of things this season that are very divisive to just plow the narrative forward. Mm -hmm. And that's because they only had half a season. And that's the best they could do. I think what he has done this season is the most that anyone's done for Cersei. For sure, that's what I'm saying. The problem is that he kind of just came in as this convenient character to push her forward. Now, of all the ways to get from here to there quicker... We've had some complaints about a bunch of those things. I think he is one of the better ones because you do that with a character. So even if we come to hate him, we're more focused on him than we are problems with the story. You just place it on your own. So I'll give you that, but I just haven't totally loved him. 
But anyway, we continue on with the meeting. Cersei accepts the truce on one condition, that John does not join either side in the fight for the crown. But John shocks everyone by telling the truth. I am true to my word. Or I try to be. That is why I cannot give you what you ask. I cannot serve two queens. And I've already pledged myself to Queen Daenerys of House Targaryen. Doesn't shock us. We knew that John would be like that. We did. I don't know if I expected it at this crucial moment for him to just kind of like word vomit that out. <laughs> but um, on the way out, Brienne tries to stop Jamie and he rebuffs her. And once gone, Danny tells John she's grateful for his loyalty, but they all agree he should have lied. John thinks lies won't help them in this fight. Now, he even cites Ned here, and we talked about how this really brings up the fact for us that John is Ned's son, despite what we've learned about his lineage. He's the only one here standing by his honor. So do you think this means he will get killed, he will die because of it eventually, like Ned? Or is this supposed to be pointing out to us that he will be the better ruler for those qualities? You know, like the things that make Danny a little bit questionable and make her followers kind of concerned about her and the way she would rule the kingdoms. John is the only one stepping up here and saying, we need to start doing right, even if that's not a popular thing. So I think it could be a bit of both. Maybe he would be the best ruler because of that, but that's why he doesn't stay on the board that long. And I thought this was a really great contrast to later on, you get our other Stark characters making their own justice quote unquote, perhaps not really doing that with honor where we see Arya and Sansa and possibly Bran. We don't know if he's been in on it the whole time, but saying that the only justice you can have is that which you create for yourself. And this led a couple of people to start wondering, does this make John the lone wolf? No, no, this is no, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you now. No, it doesn't. He's not the lone wolf. He's got people with him. Just because he's honest, he's he has honor? No, for a couple of reasons. So you have all of the Starks kind of teamed up together working in Winterfell at their home place, except for John. You have them all reacting to how do you survive in this situation by adapting, except John, who stubbornly stays true to his values and beliefs. And once you figure out that John is also a Targaryen, you're going to have all the Starks on one side and John the lone Stark slash Targaryen. So he's differentiated, I guess, in a lot of ways. If they bring the narrative to now the Starks are mad at him and they don't trust him, I'm going to be pissed off. I don't necessarily know that it's going there, but maybe they are indicating that he is on the outside. And, you know, a lot of people have said between that and his heroic tendencies, does that point to an end for him where he has to go out by being the hero and defeating our enemy? So I obviously don't like to believe that because John is my favorite character, but we will get more into that kind of speculation in our bonus. Regardless if John lied or not, Cersei would not have followed through with helping them. I think this whole storyline with them going up north, even though it was great TV, it was great spectacle, to get a white and bring it to Cersei, the only thing it did help was to get Jamie on our side, and we don't even know how that's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. Bad plan. We knew from the beginning, no matter what you do, Cersei is not going to be convinced. Uh, all this tells her is, yeah, the army is real, so let's send all these northerners up there to deal with it. 
so that they take them out while we remain safe down here. And that's exactly how she does respond. It looks like the whites still could not get through the wall without the dragon. So all it did was help the whites by delivering Viserion to them. So I think it's interesting at one point in this episode, even Danny says to John, you were right the whole time and I should have believed you. This is where the enemy was up north and we should have been fighting them. But at the end of this episode, you see, well, maybe Danny was right. You know, Cersei is never going to turn herself around. She is the enemy. Maybe they should have taken her out early the way Danny really wanted and save all of these people that have died in the battles and will continue to die so you have enough left to fight the North. Uh, that's really tough. Okay, let's move on to the scene where Tyrion goes to talk to Cersei alone. And he's trying to tell her that he really is looking to spare his family here, but she's not buying any of that. She says killing Tywin left them open to the vultures, and she threatens to finally kill him, but she can't give the order. Tyrion notes the difference between her and Danny. that Danny chose an advisor who would check her worst impulses. Do you think on some level this is what he wanted to do for Cersei in the beginning when he came down to be Hand of the King? He was hoping in some way that his family might come together. I mean, he was always the one kind of being shunted and put to the side. Yeah, for sure. I think he wanted to use his brain to thwart emotions and, you know, having an emotional king or queen just make maneuvers that aren't necessarily smart. Or are underhanded or, you know, not aligned with a vision that actually wants to help the world. And this is what he's explaining why he went over to Danny. And can you really blame him for that? So we see, though, that this is all a setup. You know, Cersei wants him to believe all of this. She wants him to realize that she's pregnant at the end so that it will play with his emotions and maybe he won't be able to take them out as easily as otherwise and he'll instruct Danny to have mercy. So again, I wondered, is the whole pregnancy thing just a ploy? Because it worked with Jamie, it works with Tyrion, but two things... My mother, shout out to her, who's a big GOT fan, noticed that Cersei did not drink the wine in this scene when Tyrion offered it to her or at any other point. So that's a big thing that might show us the pregnancy is real. And later when she returns to the pit, she has this form-fitting dress on that she's wearing the whole time, but it's open for a second and you can see her stomach and it does in fact look like a little bit of a baby bump. No, I think she really is pregnant. Now, at first I didn't, but yeah, I think it's real. And I think for sure she's playing Tyrion, just like she played Jamie. And I'm wondering what they talked about once the camera left. Yeah, that led people to a lot of assumptions. Did he try to make a deal with her or think he struck a deal with her? And that's what leads to her coming back out and saying she'll do the truce. And did this involve some things that he's maybe afraid to tell Danny about? Could that be a little suspect? I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, and I do think maybe part of what you're seeing with Cersei here is real emotion. For sure, the whole thing is a ploy and she's messing with Tyrion. But I also think she does kind of care about him on some level. You don't brew this much hate and resentment for somebody if you don't care about them in some way. And it actually looked harder for her to give the order to kill him than when she later did it with Jaime. And I know she went back on that with Jamie, but she did kind of give that initial signal, and she couldn't do that here with Tyrion. Claudio and Shira are amongst many of the Clatchers who felt that perhaps Tyrion made a deal. And I'm sure he did make a deal, but I don't think it's nefarious. Mm -hmm. But we'll definitely have to wait and see. 
While outside in the dragon pit as they wait, Danny discusses her family history with John, telling him this was the beginning of the end for them. A dragon is not a slave. They locked them here in the arena where they wasted away and grew small, and so did the Targaryens. They weren't extraordinary without them. They were just like everyone else. So there's been a lot of theories about what happened to these dragons and why they kept growing smaller and smaller. One is that, yes, they were kept in this small area and that maybe this would have happened to Danny's dragons if she kept them locked up as well. Two, it could have been because of inbreeding. You know, these all came from the three original dragons that they brought over to Westeros and were bred out from there. Or three, it could have been part of this Targaryen curse that people believe they had and that's what led to their downfall. John also tells Danny that the witch's prophecy about her not being able to have children could be wrong. So in the books, Danny believes she is infertile up until the final chapter at the end of the fifth book. If you're afraid of book five, spoiler, tune out for about 30 seconds. She begins having what seems to be a period again. Her blood starts flowing when she's out in the middle of the Dothraki Sea. She interprets this as being sick because she's been out there without food, without water for a really long time. But we as the readers believe she is becoming fertile again and able to have children. So we got a clatcher right into us with a great theory about this. It came from Lara, but she says, credit Ashley Gonzalez. The theory is only death can pay for life. So if you go back to the prophecy she got from Miri Mazdur, because Danny just lost her dragon, this allows the opportunity for a pregnancy. She had to sacrifice her child in order to bring Caldrogo back, even though that didn't work. And here, maybe by losing the dragon, you know, sacrificing it to save John, she would have that opportunity. We also got another Clatcher, and I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. I'll give you a shout out next time, who interpreted that prophecy when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east to mean that it rises in the west upon her love with Jon Snow, finally allowing it to set in the east where her love for Khal Drogo has dominated this whole time. So that allows her to put that love to rest and be with Jon, and maybe this is what causes her to become pregnant again. I love both of those. And the ending here, Tyrion returns with Cersei, who declares they will join their armies to the north to fight the Great War. Very good acting on her part. She seemed very passionate when she was saying it. I was like, whoa, she is so vindictive. Well, it's all part of this head fake, right? I can't make it seem too easy, like they have to talk me into it so they'll believe it. And they do. Oh dear, how do they? How does Tyrion not realize what's happening here? And even Jaime. Uh, He doesn't know until Cersei comes in later. He's preparing for the expedition, and she says, you fool, this was all a lie. She tells him she sent Euron to bring back the Golden Company and let the monsters kill each other while we take back our lands. And this is finally what causes Jaime to walk away. He also dares her to kill him, and she almost gives the order, but calls the mountain back, and he leaves. Chris wrote in to say, it felt to me that Cersei was closer to killing Jaime than she was to Tyrion. She gave Gregor a little nod to pull his sword. Yeah, I believe so. And we were trying to figure out what made Gregor not kill Jaime. And we were thinking maybe the nod is to take out the knife and then another nod. She has to confirm it, maybe. They're pretty in sync, these two, huh? They have like a whole sign language worked out. So it came down to honor that made Jaime finally leave. Yeah. And then, a lot of questions about honor in this episode. And then with him leaving and it's starting to snow, I think it just reaffirms to him that this is more important. Yeah, it's real. Like you said, he has seen the light from this demonstration. Now, the fact that she's going to get the Golden Army means she's not calling a truce either. So both are not true. I think she's going to come from behind oh, and course. attack. Well, I think she's going to let them 
fight a little bit. She's probably hoping they can defeat this army so she won't have to worry about it. And then when they're beaten and broken, easier to kill, she'll send the Golden Company in to finish them off. Oh, boy. But I have a good theory about that coming up in just a minute. First, the crew goes back to Dragonstone, and during the meeting, Jorah tries to suggest a different plan for Danny to ride up north on a dragon. And I missed this the first time, but I think it was a last-ditch attempt for Danny. You know, he's realizing she's falling in love with John. He knows that it's really never meant to be between the two of them, but it's kind of like one last try. And Danny does agree with John's plans to sail together to White Harbor so they will send a message of alliance to the Northerners. White Harbor, if you're wondering, is the only true city in the North. It's very small compared to the other cities, King's Landing and Old Town, but it's still the only major port or urban center in the North. And after that, Theon catches up with John and confesses he has always wanted to do the right thing, but didn't know what it was. Unlike John, who knew even when they were young and stupid, and I thought that was such a great line. It brought me all the way back to season one, one of our first scenes where they're out in the woods and they come upon the direwolves, and Theon is kind of being a little ass, like a punk about everything, and John's just sitting back there quietly watching, and I think it's Tyrion later on. Maybe that tells him bastards are forced to grow up faster than other kids. And it truly seems like he's taken all the best from Ned, but maybe not quite as much of that pigheadedness. He did exemplify it here in this meeting, but I think he's definitely also got some other stuff going on in there. I don't know if it's Rhaegar Targaryen stuff or what. But we spoke about the clear allusion to what he's going to have to face later when he advises Theon, Ned will always be a part of him. You don't need to choose. You're a Greyjoy and you're a Stark. And like we said, it's foreshadowing because the same thing's going to happen for Jon once he realizes he's a Targaryen. Yeah, and you were pointing out, you know, what is Theon's bigger purpose in the storyline? Could this be it to have to serve as a reflection point for Jon? I thought of something else. So nobody really likes this scene, we won't harp on it, where Theon goes down to the beach and tries to rally the remaining Greyjoys, and um, he's taunted into a fight with Harrig, (laughs) able to take him on once Harrig discovers he doesn't have the weakness most men do. I, I agree that was very silly, but I think the point of it was it's a physical representation of everything he's been through. His trauma, his difficulties, the fact that he got stuck in his PTSD and couldn't get out of his head, couldn't get Ramsey out of his head, it is supposed to represent a turning point where he finally kind of lets that go and says internally, it doesn't have to be my weakness, it can be my strength. I can move on. But also I thought about, okay, he gets these couple of ironborn men. Their plan right now must be they're going to go to King's Landing because that's where he thinks Yara is being kept. Is it? Or is it Iron Island? Or maybe the Iron Islands. I don't, I'm not really sure. But either way, he would go up against a decent sized army. Like how are these couple of men going to get her out? He thinks Yaron's going back home. So I think for sure they're going to the Iron Islands. Okay. So, but again, either way, he's going to go there and Euron's not going to be there because Euron's going to be sailing for Essos to pick up the Golden Company. Right. So will Theon be the one to discover that, to learn Euron's not where he's supposed to be and figure out about Cersei's duplicity and tell Jon? Well, if Jamie's going up north, I'm going to assume he'll make it before Theon goes all the way over to the Island Islands and realizes what's going on. 
in this universe, probably. I just thought this could be another place where Theon might serve some serve usefulness. Something. Yeah, maybe you can see that I have no... Figure out the secret. <laughs> if you look at that scene again, and yes, a lot of people didn't like it. If you take a step back and watch it from a bird's eye view, and what you just said... He kind of shed off his PTSD. I mean, we know that doesn't happen in real life. It's just one event sheds it off. But mm-hmm. kind of like he's ready to fight again. The ending of that scene when he hobbles over to the ocean and gets on his knees and just washes his face, I think that was symbolism of his rebirth, of washing it all away. Absolutely. And I do like that. How are you going to get to that point quickly? I mean, maybe this wasn't the best, but it definitely translated for me. The Double Ds have a hard task at hand. Essentially, they're going to take two novels that aren't written yet, huge novels, and they're going to put it all in one seven-episode season and one five-episode season. Six. Six. Okay. Yeah. Agreed. It's very difficult. And if not that, they would have to avoid this because they don't have time to go into a long Theon arc. And I'd rather that they at least sort of come back to it here in a way. And it it was very evident to us all season that they had to set the pieces up for our final season. And it was a little rough getting some of those pieces into position so quickly. But I think they have really wrapped it up by the finale in a very satisfying way that lets us know where we're headed for season eight. So let's talk about our last location, which we didn't get much into last time with Winterfell. We start with the Raven struggling through the blizzard to get there. And inside, Sansa reading the scroll that John has bent the knee to Danny. She's upset he did this without consulting her, but Littlefinger points out a strategic marriage alliance would make sense. He also suggests John could be unnamed king in the north. So now we're getting to his true motivations that we knew all along he wants Sansa to be that person. And when she argues Arya would protest, he engages her in a game. So tell me, what's the worst thing she could want? She could want me dead because she thinks I wronged my family. Why did you come to Winterfell? To kill me for marrying our enemies and betraying my family. Why did you unearth the letter Cersei made you write? To provide proof of my betrayals, to provide justification after she murders me. And after she murders you, what does she become? Lady of Winterfell. Now, I thought she played this game with him very well. I agree. It's obvious that for a few seasons now, he's been trying to teach her. She's like his protege. And I thought this was one area that the books really far surpassed the TV show. They spent a lot of time in the Eyrie after Lysa Aaron's death together. And this is where Littlefinger kind of is going through these lessons and teaching her more than he should. And she's becoming better than he realizes you're really starting to see her as a major player of the game, a major schemer. And you know from that point on, she's going to be his downfall. He can't help himself because of his own hubris. He's kind of created a monster and he doesn't even know it. But I don't think that translated well onto TV. So it looked this whole time like 
Sansa's not learning, Sansa's not learning, and now all of a sudden, for the sake of dramatic impact, she is a player, and she's figured out how to outsmart the smartest man in Westeros. She has given hints to us this season, saying, I, don't, I won't trust him. I know his games. She has said that to other characters. Just the TV show tried to show us the opposite. Yeah, but it's one thing to kind of know what he's up to, and it's another thing to be getting that good at learning. True. And we, we didn't see those indications. And again, I knew they were holding it back from us on purpose, but it felt too drastic for the sake of that reveal at the end. And the reveal is when Sansa sends for Arya to come to the Great Hall, her and Bran are seated amongst the soldiers and the lords, and Sansa announces, you are accused of murder and treason, and turns to Lord Baelish to answer the accusations. You stand accused of murder. You stand accused of treason. How do you answer these charges? Lord Baelish. And we know what they all are. Bran chimes in with his own information, and Arya says the dagger never belonged to Tyrion, but was Littlefinger's all along. Sansa says he's been doing the same thing as always, trying to turn the Starks against each other. That's what you do, that's what you've always done. And we get this moment that maybe the buildup was kind of bad for a lot of people, including myself, but the payoff was wonderful. Littlefinger falling to his knees, pleading to the Knights of the Vale, to Sansa, begging that he loved Catelyn, he loves her. And she just says, thank you for all your many lessons, Lord Baelish. I will never forget them. And then Arya with the quick kill. The kill was satisfying to me. That scene was very satisfying to me. And like everyone thinks, just the way they built it up wasn't done the best. The sisters fighting was a ploy just for GOT to kind of try to fool us. But we weren't fooled. I think when Sansa and Arya and Bran were talking at the tree a couple episodes ago, this was one of the things that was discussed. And they knew it that whole time. They knew all the details. Now, we had some Clytors saying they don't think Bran told them that. They knew they had the ability to know that. I agree with you that they knew some of it, but not the details. And I think Bran was definitely the one to let them know everything in accordance. Because that scene that I was just talking about in front of the tree was right after Lord Baelish gave Bran the knife. And Bran says, chaos is a ladder. Letting us know and letting him know I know things about you. Yeah, if you think about the charges, though, the murder of Lysa Aaron, Sansa knows that. She was there. She saw it. Conspiring to murder John Aaron, they know from when they were in King's Landing with their father. Betraying Ned Stark with false charges of treason, Sansa saw. And initiating the conflict between the Lannisters and the Starks. So that is the part they might have had to come together and talk about with this dagger and how it changed hands. You know, we've followed that all the way through. Did each one of them have uh, complete knowledge of that? I'm not sure. We would like to think that they worked together on this and that Bran is having usefulness. I still think maybe it's a little bit of an open question. How much can he see? How much can he contribute? Um, because we know that has some flaws in it. But I think just from him sitting at the table and taking part in this is supposed to indicate that to you. So you think they knew from the time that they had that conversation, the weird scene between Sansa and Arya where she says she'd love to wear her face? Yeah, I think so. And I think the whole thing was to kind of throw us off balance. I don't think it was acted out like they were acting it for anybody. I think that scene still happened 
but it wasn't because of the letter necessarily. It was more of the sisters getting to know who they are now. Oh, so you think it was a real fight and they weren't playing it, you know, for Littlefinger's benefit because he's spying on everything. (sighs) I just don't see that. I don't either. And that's why I say I wonder how long they knew because that seems really over the top. The problem is that Arya didn't seem to be acting like Arya at that point. There was a lot of weirdness if they weren't acting. So now that would seem to make sense. They knew Littlefinger was spying, watching on everything, and they were putting on a show for him. But I still feel like they could have genuinely been butting heads for a little while, maybe not wanted to kill each other, but you know, had to kind of work this stuff out. And when they realized what was going down and what Littlefinger's intentions were, it it was kind of like, why are we doing this? And we could work together on something more important. I don't think the storyline is giving that to us, but that's what I'd like to believe. And we do see them, you know, coming together, getting this, this nice ending where they're on the battlements and talking about how they teamed up on this. Arya says she was just the executioner. Sansa gave the sentence. She's the Lady of Winterfell. So they're in agreement on this. They're both finally able to understand the strength it must have taken for each to go through their respective journeys. And they remember their father's words. In winter, we must protect ourselves and look after one another. And that's when we get Sansa's quote from the trailer before the season started. When the snow falls and the white wind blows, the lone wolf dies but the pack survives. For sure, Littlefinger was the lone wolf. Okay, so that's your theory Yeah. on that one, striking out on his own, and, and uh, that's why he got taken out. Yeah, and finally, Sam arrives at Winterfell and finds Bran, who tells him about becoming the Three-Eyed Raven. He says John is on his way back and needs to know the truth about his parents being Rhaegar and Lyanna, but he still believes this makes him a bastard, a sand, until Sam shares the truth he learned in the scroll about the secret marriage. And Bran confirms through the vision of the past, the kidnap and rape was a lie. Rhaegar and Lyanna actually loved each other. Bran also realizes his name was meant to be Aegon, and he's the heir to the Iron Throne. So, you know, the problem I had here was there was no big secret revealed. We already knew about the parentage for a while now. We knew about him being legitimate from what Gilly found. The only thing that we didn't know was his name, the fact that they intended to name him Aegon. Yes, and that's the issue that the Double Ds had. They knew that mostly everybody knew already, but they had to find still an interesting way to reveal it. And I think they did do that with using Bran to go into the past. But also it's a reveal, not for us, but for our characters. And I think that's impactful in itself. Now we don't know what that's going to mean once John and Danny find out. A few things. One, it does show that Bran still is not the three-eyed raven that we want him to be. Mm-hmm. He had half the truth, but not the whole truth. So Bran's like Google, okay? He's the Google machine. And Sam is the one typing in the correct questions to ask, and Bran can go into the database of the world and find the answer. And I can understand that. You know, yes, you can go into the past, but do you know where to go all the time? No. Yeah, there's the entire amount of information that you have in the whole world. And how do you sift through that and find the right thing? Like you said, just like the internet. But if somebody can point you in the right direction, it's easy enough to look it up. I guess the issue was that he had already gotten the first part of this vision. And seeing how taken with it he was, he knows it's important and he has to tell John, didn't he ever think to go back and start looking for visions of Rhaegar and Lyanna or even what she said at the end of that scene there? Another thing I wanted to ask you, don't we already have an Aegon? 
I'm really glad you bring that up. Um, I do agree with you. It's not so much about the information here. It's about other characters getting it, us seeing how they respond to it, Bran and Sam, whoever else they tell next. How are they going to feel about Jon being a Targaryen? Because that's really going to show us how the tide is going to sway and the, the tension that Jon himself doesn't know, right? How long is this going to go on that other people know and Jon doesn't? And what is it going to mean when he finally does know? Real quick, let me cut you off. They for sure better be smart enough to not tell the sisters or anyone else there until they tell John first and let John be the one to let everyone else know. Aren't you a little surprised, though, that he told Sam and he hasn't told Sansa and Arya? I agree with you, but just isn't it weird that he didn't? Maybe Bran didn't know as long as we think. Maybe he's just figured this out. I was thinking he knew from the time Sansa came to him at the heart tree and says... I wish John were here. And he said, yeah, I really need to talk to him. Oh, yeah. Which has been a while. I think you're right. And it's weird. It's been months. Weird that he didn't tell them that. but Not weird. Smart. If he's smart enough, like you're saying, good point. It, it makes you a little suspect that he barely knows Sam, and yet he shared the information with him. But okay, let's put that aside. Maybe he will be smart enough to know when and how to share well, he told Sam because he's not a Stark. He saved his life, and he's been in the Citadel. And I think Sam's probably been dropping some knowledge on him, too. Mm-hmm. So, But back to your question about Aegon, it is a loaded name. It's quite a thing for the writers to choose for that to have been the name they were supposed to call John. The first thing this goes back to is Aegon the Conqueror, who was the first Targaryen king who invaded and conquered, came over to Westeros, and he was the first to rule over United Seven Kingdoms. So that leads to the questions of, will John become the next Aegon king? Will he be the first to take down this structure that the first Aegon put in place? But let's go to Rhaegar naming his children. Apparently, Rhaegar read in a prophecy once in an arcane book about the prince that was promised, who would save the world from the return of the White Walkers. So he read this in an old book. That leads me to wonder if Sam possibly has that book with him and could read the same thing. And he came to believe it would be about his children. The dragon has three heads. So he thought the prophecy referred to three people acting together. The Targaryens had first conquered and united Westeros when led by three dragon riders, after all, Aegon and his two sister wives. So he named his first two children after the original trio, his daughter, Rhaenys, and his son, Aegon. And when Danny got her vision in the House of the Undying of a man resembling Viserys and a woman nursing a newborn baby... George R. R. Martin confirmed that was, in fact, Rhaegar, Ilya, and their infant son, Aegon. Later, we heard, at the end of Robert's Rebellion, how the mountain killed these children. Do you remember them talking about that? He bashed their heads in. And, yeah. um, so that was Rhaenys and baby Aegon. And Oberon went on and on about this when he was trying to kill the mountain. He talked about, you raped her, you murdered her, you killed her children. That was Aelia and her children. So Rhaegar's first son was named Aegon. Okay. And then he went ahead and named this son Aegon? I don't know. (laughs) He's out of names. Um, The only explanation that people are talking about that I guess fits is because he knew this was the prophecy and the son was going to be important... He wanted that son to bear the important name Aegon. So try again. (laughs) Yeah, basically, do-over, which I guess maybe 
It's a little weird. Those Targaryens, those OG Targaryens are all weird. So Point taken. This one will be named Aegon Jr. 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 <laughs> Aegon the 45th will be the prince that was promised. <laughs> but I really liked that. Rhaegar himself telling us it has to be three people acting together. It's not one person that fulfills this prophecy. And that's exactly what we've been speculating at this whole time. And this, of course, flashes parallel to the John and Danny scene where they sleep together. Uh, people are really weirded out about this because of the whole aunt and nephew thing. I, to be honest with you, I wasn't even really thinking about it at Me this neither. moment. Especially in those times. I say those times like it's the past. But, okay, in this universe, this happens often, doesn't it? Yeah, and especially the Targaryens wed brother to sister forever, which is why I say I think Danny will be fine with it. It might be John right. that has the problem if he's already kind of confronted with this Targaryen lineage that he's maybe having an internal block yeah. against. You know, that might be a bridge too far for him. Um, but we are going to get into that topic more. We got a great Clatcher's comment. We'll talk about that in the bonus. So let's talk about Tyrion's face. Yeah, three possibilities. One, he's just afraid strategically. What is John and Danny getting together going to mean? What does it mean as his place, as her advisor? I mean, she's listening an awful lot to him now. His advice isn't going so well. What does that mean for him? Number two, Tyrion is in love with her. We had a lot of Clatchers write in believing that's the case. Chris wrote on Twitter, I think Tyrion is in love with Daenerys. He told her to break up with Dario, sent Jorah away, and sent Jon to bring a white. And I, there was also that whole conversation about... At the fire. Her with heroes and him kind of feeling a little slighted that she didn't yeah. consider him a hero. She even made that weird comment, John's a little small for me. <laughs> and he looked so hurt. And she was like, oh, it's not really what I meant. And um, it felt awkward for no reason unless you consider that maybe he's developing feelings for her. And Tyrion has kind of always famously fallen in love with these women that it's doomed to failure. So I think that's kind of a tragic end uh, all the men surrounding her, all the men who advise her inevitably fall in love with her. Why not Tyrion? Or number three, he is somehow plotting with Cersei. Whether that be knowingly something malicious, which I don't think, or unknowingly just that he had to try so hard to talk Cersei into this that maybe he put something on the table that is not so great, yeah. that he doesn't want Danny to have to know he did that in order to get the truce. And our Clatcher Kate points out, wasn't Danny supposed to be betrayed for a third time, the last one for love? Not sure outright betrayal, or maybe just not revealing a detail, so Cersei won't be killed. I didn't see it as Tyrion being in love with Danny. I saw it as him rethinking and doubting. So, yeah, I really like that all. You know, he's not intentionally plotting against her. He had to do something to make this bargain work. And then maybe later he has to talk Danny into something so she doesn't kill Cersei and the unborn child. It's mm. just stretching him too thin. Yeah. And he's trying to play both sides of the fence a little. It's very hard to, to know. And that reminds me, I can't believe I forgot about this, when we were <laughs> just the look on Tyrion's face, I think it was great acting if we rewind real quick all the way back to Tyrion walking into his sister's office. Office? What would you call that? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Why not? They show him right out the door, right outside the door, look to the right, and then slowly walk in. That had such weight mm. for us, visually and emotionally. He's about to walk into someone he knows hates him, someone he knows who has always been mean to him, someone who 
he knows would kill him. Is impossible to reason with. Yes, and that too. <laughs> it's kind of like taking a deep breath when you're walking into a boss where you know you're going to have to keep your cool because this bitch going to get crazy. <laughs> so I just thought, if you guys watch the episode again, take a look at that. Great acting in that part. I can't believe I forgot about that. And think about how hard that must be in his position. You know, not... not <laughs> That he loves Cersei or he wants to team up with her, but she is still family. He doesn't want to have to kill her, especially with an unborn child in her belly. And that's why, you know, I had to wonder if she is lying about that up until this episode. She knows how that's going to affect him, right? She says that on purpose because he outright admits the thing he feels most badly about is playing some kind of role in her children being killed, Mm. Um, that really does upset him. That's his family too. So you have her on that side acting very mad queen. And then you have Danny on the other side who is no joke. She's formidable. She's already getting fed up with him. She already knows he cares too much about his family more than he should to be a good advisor to her. He's walking a real fine line here. So I think anything that changes that dynamic is going to make him fear for the outcome. All right, in our last scene... We see down at the heart tree, Bran warging into the ravens to see Eastwatch, where Tormund and Beric stand atop the wall. The horn blows three times and the army of the dead approaches. The Night King rides in on undead Viserion and the dragon blasts blue fire at the wall as Tormund and Beric try to rush to safety. That section of the wall collapses into the sea and opens a breach where the army begins moving through. We had a Clatcher ask, is this presently happening or is it... Bran seeing the future because Bran works in. That's how we get introduced to this scene. And he's on all the crows. And I answered both. I think he's warging in, but it's happening presently. Yeah. You know, we discussed how Bran makes a point to tell us several times in this episode. He can see the past and the present. He never says the future and we've never actually seen him see the future on his own. So while we thought that was a gift of Greensight and the Three-Eyed Raven, and maybe is, and Bran just hasn't acquired that skill yet, it's not being shown to us yet. Right. I really believe that the Night King can see the future, though. I do, too. Because of the whole dragon thing. I won't get back into it, but the whole... They had no way of crossing that wall, still, without that dragon. And he had his dudes waiting and waiting until the dumb humans will come across with their dragons and will take one down. For sure, that was a plan, and that's one small part of what's leading some people to the theory of Bran as the Night King, right? which we will get into in the bonus. I dig it. I don't want to adopt that theory, but let me just say real quick, that would make sense if he can't see the future because that's his future. Right. Or because he hasn't entered that time stream yet. He hasn't gone back to try to change it, but he will. And once he goes back and he is the Night King... He's obviously going to know what's going to happen to him. Uh, But right now, he doesn't know it because he can't actually see the future. The Night King only knows because he's been through it as Bran. So that would make sense. But I think just equally as likely, people who have strong green sight, like the old Three-Eyed Raven and the Night King, do have that. And Bran just hasn't cultivated that power enough. We know he's having a difficult enough time seeing the present. So maybe he's just not there yet. Joseph also asked, did we know what Viserion was going to be shooting out of his mouth? I assumed it would be like ice shards, but it seems it would have to be fire to bring down the wall. Since it was blue, does that mean it's hotter than the fire the other dragons are breathing? Is this something to look for if we ever see the dragons fight each other? 
Um, so we speculated on that. I don't know that we have the definitive answer to it. In the books, the ice dragons did breathe some sort of ice. And we talked about how George R. R. Martin speaks of the control the Night King and his White Walkers have over ice as being unlike anything you've ever seen before. They have powers over the ice you can't even imagine. So we talked about the possibility of it being some type of frozen fire, which is stronger. It could just be hotter, meaning it burns blue instead of red. Or this could be some kind of magical combination that we don't really understand. We kind of thought if it was melting the wall like regular fire, you would see some melting going on. Whereas it seems to blast through it, more like a current of electricity or lightning. And that's the first thing I thought of when I saw it. It looked like it was crackling alive like lightning. We had a lot of clatchers on Twitter and Facebook ask us the same things. Looking online, everyone just keeps calling it blue fire. Mm. And I think that's just because there was a ripple pattern within it the way you see with fire. fire. Yeah. But I, I don't think that's proof of anything yet. Maybe it's dry ice. They can make ice cream with it. Well, they talk about <laughs> they talk about obsidian or dragon glass being like frozen fire, right? It comes out of a volcano as this kind of liquid fire, and then it freezes hard and rock solid. So that's fire in a different form than a way we think about it typically. Maybe this is something like that. It's fire, but not the way you're used to thinking about it. Yeah. It's frozen. It is different. Right. And it has to be. A lot of clatchers were asking, you know, if this is a white, fire kills whites. So wouldn't the dragon kill himself with the fire inside of him? So yeah, I think it's, it is fire, same principle, but... It reacts differently because of the magic that's reanimated it. Yeah. And um, possibly is even stronger than regular fire because we see what it's able to do, the damage to the wall. Um, you know, we've seen regular dragon fire do some hell of a damage. We've never seen it try to go up against something like a wall. I don't think we're going to know until we see them square off. Oh, not looking forward to that. I mean, I am, but I'm not. Something to note is that the Night King can choose to ride this dragon, can choose to warg into this dragon, can choose to just sit there and let the dragon do his thing. So how we kill the Night King, we still don't know. It depends on if he's riding or if he's not riding. Mm. Who do we take out first? Uh, I guess the Night King, because then the dragon will go down first, but I don't think it's going to go down that way. That's going to be hard, yeah. Can the Night King die from falling off great heights? I don't think so. Jeez. I don't think he can die from most regular ways or even the other ways we kill a White Walker. So, uh, you know, maybe you can take down the other White Walkers in order to remove a large percentage of the army because we saw that that does work. But I think you're still going to be left having to go up against the Dragon and the Night King with our lead heroes, Danny, John, the Dragons. We're not going to have a scorpion if Cersei doesn't Oh, you're telling acquiesce. me we can't find some other blacksmith to make a new freaking scorpion. She found one. Come on, Gendry, get your buddies together. Start building some badass weapons. Now, here's the whole thing about timelines, and I'm worried about this. They're already crossed the wall. Oh, yeah, we are well and truly fucked now. <laughs> How long is it going to take them? Winterfell is going to be dust. Because for sure, they're not going to stop them. At Winterfell. Uh, I said this from the beginning. I, I know that John thought this situation was temporarily under control when he left, but how do you leave Winterfell without at least planning for what happens if we get word this army's marching already? 
Are my men prepared? Did I tell them about a plan? How are we going to get back to Winterfell stat? I mean, really, really, if your focus was on fighting the Night King, Mm -hmm. we haven't prepped for this at all yet. I'm sure he sent some dragon glass, probably sent some people to talk about it. I hope so, but we didn't see that. They talked about training already. We saw Sansa saying she hasn't heard a freaking word from John and doesn't know what he's up to. And our men didn't even have leather on their armor till she told them to get some. It's frightening. But anyway, we're going too far into this. We got to save some stuff for the bonus. Let's wrap it up for this episode. Jason, for our Raven rating, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give the season 7 finale? I'm going the same as last episode, 9.7 Ravens. It was good. It was a great finale. I think the Double Ds did a great job with the juxtaposition between the way this season ends and the way last season ended. Last season, we ended on a high note. Danny riding in on her ships, looking bad ass. And now, the Night King riding in on his stolen vehicle, <laughs> looking badass. So, it, the juxtaposition was good. Grand Theft Dragon. <laughs> Um, I totally agree with you. I am going the same as last episode as well. I'm giving it a 9.9. Come at me, crow. I don't care what you say. I thought this was an epic finale. Uh, The only things I had minor dislike for was the journey of the Sansa Arya thing. Yes. But the conclusion, which is what we actually got here. Was awesome. Was epic. And the brand revelation thing. And again, the way we got there, not so fantastic what we see in the finale, phenomenal. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, what made that scene for me was Arya's look. Her acting in this was great. On with it then. And then as soon as she said Lord Baelish, the look on her face when she looks left, like, ooh, shit. And then <laughs> Littlefinger, lost for words. Littlefinger, lost for words. Jason, we called it seasons ago. That season seven finale, the last episode, last scene would be the wall coming down. We did, didn't we? No, it wasn't the whole wall coming down like we imagined. It was only one little chunk, but nevertheless, the wall came down. Not that it's a good thing, but yeah, all of these conclusions, these payoffs. And, you know, I still was pretty high on most of this season. Even the parts I had trouble with, I still graded fairly high. I was not as down on this maybe as some other people were. And, um, you know, not blaming you for the struggles that they had. Again, we'll get into that in bonus, but I thought they wrapped it up with a very satisfying conclusion. So your MBB, most valuable bannerman, out of our options, which were Cersei, Sansa and Arya, Night King and the Dragon, or Bran? Well, I'm definitely not going Night King. I'm just, I'm not going bad guy. Not going to happen. You never go bad guy, Jason. it's not in me. So... I'm going Sansa and Arya. Mm-hmm. It's got to be. You know, even though the way they got to it was not the best, it was one of the better scenes this episode. It was a, one of the only times I felt good this episode, <laughs> so I'm going with that. Sansa and Arya working together to kick some butt. I definitely did like that, but you know I have my problems there. So for my first ever time on Game of Thrones, I am giving MVB to a bad guy, Night King and his dragon. Oh. I can't help it if you want to look at most impactful player for the episode. He did something that was a game changer. Killing Littlefinger was amazing and satisfying. Not a huge game changer like taking down the wall and riding in on a super crazy undead dragon. I agree with you. I I 
get what you're saying, <laughs> but he's, I feel like he cheated. So of course he cheated, but he <laughs> did it in a very smart way. He tricked our characters. Yeah. Like I say, I don't love doing that either. It's my first time, even though there's been some episodes where maybe it should have gone to Cersei, let's say, but I, I can't pass this over this time. I do love the fact that they don't talk. I still love that. Oh yeah. I think that makes them so much more menacing. They're so interesting. That's what it is. As scary as they are, I just want to know more about what's going on there. And every time they're on scene, I'm captivated. You know, this is fascinating. So um, as as bad as it is, I wait for those scenes at the same time. And we asked our Clatchers on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, who their most valuable bannerman was for the finale. We got 186 votes, and the results are? Coming in last in life, Cersei with 2%. Wow, only 2% for Cersei. I'm surprised. Because she didn't do anything except for lie. Yeah, but it worked. <laughs> for now. She lost the only person left who actually loves her. I agree. That turns it all around for sure. Bran at 14%. Yeah, he wasn't that great. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the Night King and Viserion, 18%. Wow, I am shocked they only got 18%. They were, they were a very close second for a while. And a whopping 66% for Sansa and Arya. Wow. And we got some messages saying that they meant to hit Sansa and Arya. Just messed up. So there's even more to that. Wow. Clear winner. Heber wrote, my finger missed. I wanted to vote for Sansa and Arya. (laughs) Not the Night King and Viserion. Damn it. Even less votes. I immediately let him know that his little finger betrayed him. Uh, And he must cut it off. Oh my God. Great. (laughs) Scott, thank you for the awesome gif. (laughs) Kate, Littlefinger's demise was a long time coming. Brian K., tough call. Had to go with the sister act. Though you could make a strong case for any of them. Rest in hell, Littlefinger. And thank you so much for everyone else who wrote to us. While you're talking about Arya and Sansa, Michelle wrote in prior to this episode to talk about something we had highlighted in a season six podcast about Arya and Sansa. When reviewing her decision to murder all the Freys, we noted the greater strategy for Arya would have been to use Walder's face to send the Freys to King's Landing and harm Cersei. However, instead, a desire for revenge and training as a faceless man drove her to murder the entire Frey clan. We also mentioned she's a trained assassin, but not trained in war tactics, and therefore not as good at seeing the bigger picture. But who has been trained in war tactics and scheming? Sansa. If Sansa could help Arya to use her faceless man's skills for a grander strategy, the two would very quickly gain power. It would require them to work together, respect and trust each other's skills, something they have struggled with their entire lives due to their stark personality differences. (laughs) Wouldn't it be a nice character arc to see them working together to out-scheme Littlefinger, ultimately outing him and ending in an assassination by Arya, and then continue on to coordinate larger, more impactful strategies in the war to come? So, Michelle... You call it based on our own thoughts from last season, which we didn't put together and you did. And if they continue on with this to take out larger targets, such as Cersei, maybe with what we hoped for this whole time by Arya wearing Littlefinger's face to get in close in King's Landing and trick Cersei, that would be the ultimate. So I love your take on that. Thank you very much for pointing it out. Now, as I said, we're not going to get to all of these comments today. We have a really fun bonus set up for you guys where we will go over Clatcher's comments and any that come our way this week as well. Plus, we're also going to do Raven ratings, go over what we gave each episode as well as give our season rating. 
And MVBs, same thing. We're going to give the season MVB. So in between now and then, please write in with your Raven rating for season seven and your MVB character for the whole season so that we can read some of that out. We would do a poll, but you could only do four people. So there's no way we, we could encompass everyone that deserves a nod for the entire season. We'll just give some shout outs. We'll also talk about fun facts, do some trivia, discuss information about season eight and theories and predictions. So jam-packed with fun. It's one of our better episodes of the season. GOT has ended, but we're not there yet. So make sure you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'd like to give some shout outs to Tariq, Nigo242, Christina, who has a brother named Jason, Chris M, Kara, Blair, Sean, our new Patreon member. And I think there's been some since this too that I don't have. Yes, we have a few other ones. So thank you to everybody who joined Patreon. We'll give your names a shout out next time. To James, to Lindsay, who gave us an article about Tyrion's reaction to Danny that we'll read in bonus. Barb, for those thoughts on incest that we'll come back around to. John, who had some great questions for us. Kelsey, who talked about John's second death. Micah, about the dagger. And Heber, about death is the enemy. So again, we will come back around to all of that. Also, Jorge wrote in before the episode to say he thought that the death of the finale would be for Tyrion. I was getting worried about that as well. I'm really happy it didn't happen, although we're not sure he's safe in the future. So we'll have to wait and see. Orin said, might the good guys have to raise the dead too? I was trying to think of the larger picture. How would humans be able to beat an army of the dead? Then it hit me. The humans south of the wall will have to create their own army. So I said, I know we've seen individual characters like Melisandre and Thoros do that, but I don't think it could extend to a greater population. At least I don't think. Yeah, I don't see any signs of that, but wouldn't it be cool if we all of a sudden see Ned back and... (laughs) <laughs> all of our beloved characters back for our side yeah. instead of because i definitely don't want to see them pop up on the bad side no no i mean for the good but i don't think they're going to go that route they have shown no signs of the humans being able to do that or the good guys being able to do that micah wrote in to give us some thoughts about the valyrian steel dagger and who it could have belonged to whether that was a targaryen or a stark ancestor or maybe the night king himself And so Arya having it, perhaps she will have to use it in the fight of the Long Night and not just in individual targets. So we've talked about that. I still don't know if I see her being a fighter in the battle. I do think at least for a while she will continue with these assassination attempts and now in coordination with her siblings. But who knows? And finally, John had some great questions. The ones about the Long Night, again, we will get to next time. But for this one, he said, the hound says his brother has known who's coming for him. I assume he's talking about the Night King. Agree? And uh, we didn't think about that. We were talking about the Lord of Light and the hound. But given the fact that technically he's dead and been raised from the dead, um, I don't know if he's going to be on the Night King radar. But he also asked, do the books clarify what exactly has been done to the mountain by Kyburn? to aid in explaining the possibilities and better theorizing? That's a really great question, and the books, too, are very cryptic about this. After he is stabbed with the poison in his fight against Oberyn, because we know his spear was tipped, the venom starts to turn the blood in his body black with gangrene, and any leeches that touch him die instantly. So they've actually had to boil away flesh from the bone in order to get rid of it. Uh, The venom was eating a hole the size of a fist in his side. 
Kyburn was constantly wondering how the man was still alive, and he was screaming day and night until Cersei finally said to just shut him up. So he brought him to the black cells where nobody could hear him scream anymore and continued conducting his experiments on him. He concluded it was manticore venom that was thickened with sorcery in order to draw out his death. He later mentions he's working on creating an unbeatable champion for Cersei, using several female prisoners that were down there in the experiments. But that's about the extent of what we know. Nobody knows for sure. It sounds a little like necromancy. Um, We know that Kyburn perhaps could have been trained in some of these arts. He was kicked out of the Citadel before he left, but might have begun studying some of those higher mysteries. And so we had wondered how that's going to come back into play as well. Thank you. That's a really great question. And thank you to everybody who wrote in with some really great comments in general about CKC and the coverage we've been doing. Hopefully I got a chance to get back to most of you, including Helene, but they're really amazing comments and that's what makes us doing all of this worth it. You guys keep us going. So thank you. So Game of Thrones is over for this season besides our bonus, but that doesn't mean it has to be the end of the CKC podcast. Just a reminder, we have Mr. Robot coming to you as soon as that season starts. That starts up in October. It's a really good show. If you haven't watched it yet, you have some time. Check those out. And we have podcasts on that, so you can listen to those as well. After that will be Westworld, um, another great show by HBO. And in the meantime, you guys can definitely check us out on our Patreon page where we give you bonus episodes and movie reviews, along with great conversations on those pages. The best way to find that is coffeeclatchcrew.com. You'll see a button there. It says Patreon. Give it a try for a month. And thank you again for all the Clatchers who already joined Patreon. And we hope you guys are enjoying it. So we're coming back next week with our bonus Game of Thrones episode. Don't miss it. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. God, you nerd. Look at all these pieces of paper. You nerd. Let's see, this is what we're going to do for the cast. That makes us great. Skip this page, skip this page. Danny looking like a badass on dragons. Skip this page. Cersei being a selfish biatch. Skip this page, skip this place. Ooh! Jon Snow's tushy. Skip this page. Skip this page. Evil dragon. Oh, I skipped the other one. Hold on. Let's go back to page number 50. Sansa and Arya. Kill Littlefinger. Dig it. Now let's go evil blue dragon. Don't dig it. There we go. There's the cast. That was phenomenal. You nerd. It was great podcasting. You nerd. You just lost us, all our listeners. Thank you very much.